This is episode 71 of the Near Future Laboratory podcast with me, your host, Julian Bleeker, and I have an important announcement to kick things off, which is this. The Manual of Design Fiction is selling quickly. As you know, we're a 100% independent publisher. Now, what does that mean to you? Well, it basically means that I run the publishing division from right here in my humble backyard studio. That's right. All the logistics, working with our wonderful printing partners, doing design and layout, commissioning cover art, creating social media advertising, working with enthusiastic partners to help publicize the book we're publishing, working with you to help us get the word out. All of that. Now, some people might refer to this as self-publishing in a derisive, demeaning kind of way, as if doing things on your own without the imprimatur of an established mega publisher is of less value. I don't see things that way. I see the mega publishers as useful for anyone who maybe is less willing to do the work, less willing to connect directly with their readers, and less willing to feel into the way that expressing important, meaningful ideas in book form can create value for the reader and return value for the authors and publisher. This is what we're doing. And so when you buy one of our books, you're helping support more meaningful content where you can be assured that a very significant portion of the value, the money, is going to the actual creators of the content. So please head over to shop.nearfuturelaboratory.com and get your copy of the Manual of Design Fiction. And uh, some new things are going to be dropping there soon. Super excited. Also, please support the podcast over at patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. It's one of the best ways to let me know you value this and all the other things we're doing the Near Future Laboratory. It's also a way into the NFL Discord, which is where we do a whole bunch of design fiction projects, as well as converse on the topic and share our collective enthusiasm for design and creative practices. Okay, so this, which is episode 71, is a conversation with writer and noted architecture critic and friend Jeff Mayno, who has written for the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, Wired, The New Yorker, The Guardian, The Financial Times Magazine, New Scientist, Cabinet Magazine, one of my old old school favorites, The Daily Beast, Wired UK, and many other publications. He also co-authored with Nicola Toile the book Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine, and also A Burglar's Guide to the City on the Relationship Between Crime and Architecture. I first came across Jeff when he was blogging at Building Blog, uh, which where he was plying his craft as an architecture critic and thinking really deeply about space and how we occupy it and built the built environment. Something super exciting, uh, r- very recently, a ghost story he wrote called Ernest, he wrote that back in 2017, was adapted for film, which is amazing, and recently released on Netflix under the title We Have a Ghost, which is a beautiful and fun and very clever show, uh, which... I guess it's not a show. It's a, it's a movie. Shows have episodes. Uh, it was super fun to watch. I recommend you watch it, um, but you know, do it after listening to this episode. Okay, enough of that. Here is my coffee conversation with Jeff Mayno. So how's life? Man, I got to tell you, it's, this is an incredibly dynamic, fun time. I don't, it's, it's like, I don't know. I feel like, it's a moment. I don't want to sound like I'm off my meds or something. Um, it, it feels like, it feels like a moment like I've kind of been waiting for for like a long time in some way. You know, extended <laughs> moment, not just like today necessarily, but like what yeah. is kind of going on and like a like a like a kind of um, 
a bombardment of of interests and aspirations and kind of uh, and and uh, experiences, you know, things that I've done where it's kind of like, okay, well, in some in some weird kind of existential way, it feels like, okay, everything's been leading up to this. This is it. This is what you've, mm-hmm. you know, why you went through all those things and why you had those, um, you know, prod. I don't know what it is, and uh, and so it's just it just feels exciting in a way that is. I was just thinking about it, just just writing the intro to this to this uh, to this next book project, and it was like I started. I, I I just I set up a little bit of a of a of a point between the feeling and experiences that I had in in sort of you know, vaguely in the like the early like almost like at the cusp of the internet becoming kind of you know in a way hygiene like oh, okay I mean I know the internet was around forever and you know many of us used it like in grad school to do something like gopher or use fetch or whatever it was to find a thing and it and that was always at the edge of it like that was just it was there were like a handful of us who were finding the way to i don't know just nerd out and and, and it existed in that world you had a dot edu mm. email address and as soon as you left school it's like oh can i keep that email address because it's my sign in for all these things and then um yeah. So that that always that that felt like this this sense of like possibility and potential at that particular moment, because nothing really made sense, except that it felt like it was a thing, <clears throat> like early yeah. like the super early dot com like where it was or maybe even before that was just like I don't know man there's this thing happening on mm. computers and and the fact that like I was you know I'd o- always sort of felt into like computers as something that yeah I had a TRS eighty when I was. 16. So it's like computers is like, okay, this is gonna be a part of my life in one way or another. I don't know how I have no clue, but you know, I guess who uses computers? Well, astronauts do <laughs> engineers do. So maybe yeah. I'll try to be one of those kinds of things and I can have this as part of my life. And then like sure. .com kind of internet stuff comes on. It's just like, Whoa, now, now everyone else is sort of feeling, it seems like that same thing, like, you know, and, and, and they're still trying to make sense of it. And, you know, people, you know, maybe like you and me, just sort of generalizing, would find our way into communities of practice that maybe it's like kind of the art technology crowd, or people experimenting with ways of connecting computers to like things that you wouldn't expect, like, check it out, I connect, connect a computer to my light bulb, you know, and you're just kind yeah. of like, whoa, man, that's like an experiment in the future, like something's going on there, like you're messing around in this way. And it just, it, it felt like so it felt it felt it was just full of possibilities. It felt almost felt like you could do anything and you're gonna do something that's gonna at least be interesting. And then, you know, that that kind of yeah. goes for a while. And then it it kind of then, you know, I don't know, you know, I, I kind of cynically mark it as like, well, the first time someone shoved a credit card into this internet thing, then it started falling apart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a, you know, it's it's a it's a straw man. But I think for the purposes I, I kind of remember thinking that I was like, whoa, because I remember seeing a website. I was working at a at a web shop and Every day something new was happening. Someone was like, look at this, man. Someone yeah. like, this is crazy. You can put a credit card in there. And so people then yeah. all of a sudden transactions become possible. And then, you know, it, it slowly starts taking this weird turn where then it's like it, there's less interest in being imaginative for the sake of just exploring in a, in a kind of unbridled way, you know, making lots of really productive nonsense as to what you do with these things. Beatrice mm-hmm. DeCosta hooking up a pigeon to the Internet. You know, and having sure. it fly around San Jose and do sensor readings, like, whoa, cool. Um, and then yeah. it's like, well, how, you know, can we make, what's the ROI on that? You know, whatever. Um, 
Yeah. And, and 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 we in that trough, you know, and and I feel like I feel like that trough is now recognized to such a degree. And maybe it's just me like paying more attention to such a degree that I feel like, okay, I think we're on the cusp of something new again, where people are going to be like, you know what, I don't know, like, I, you know, I used to think that Google would do no evil, and they were going to save the world. But now I really don't know, they seem kind of banal and boring. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's funny. I mean, I feel like the, uh, the other thing that's happening is not just that um, you know, the uh, the the becoming economic of the Internet, you know, the, the ability to put a credit card into into online life and and transact with other people, you know, is is a oh, it's funny. We actually have the same uh, drinking bottle. Check it out. Mine was on sale. I got there it on go. sale the other day. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but also I think the funny thing is, you know, even just this morning, there was another article about um, some guy had a ring doorbell and uh, it got all of the footage taken on one particular day back in October just got subpoenaed and ring automatically turned over all footage shot by not only his outdoor camera, but also his indoor cameras. And so the law, law enforcement in the city that he lives in, I can't remember where it is, but now has access to all of his indoor cameras on that one particular day. Um, and it's all about trying to see, I guess, what his neighbor was up to in a possible criminal investigation. But my point is that, you know, there's that heyday of the Internet back where, um, yeah, you know, you could hook a house plant up to Twitter. That's and right. It would say whether or not it needed, needs water or you have a pigeon that's now online. Um, but now you can imagine, though, that we're going into this phase where, you know, the FBI might subpoena your plant, um, you know, or it might subpoena the pigeon that you're using for air quality readings because it picks up some sort of, uh, you know, an illegal factory in South Los Angeles or that kind of thing. Um, but it's funny because I just feel like that's also what's happening is that by putting everything online, we're also opening up this weird dystopia of like infinite witnesses for possible incrimination. So it's kind of funny. I mean, I, I envy your uh, sense actually of of the the idea that we're on a cusp of uh, an optimistic period, maybe of of creative production and engagement and interaction. Because uh, it it's a there are definitely days where I feel like that version of the internet is almost literally just sort of entombed or embalmed now and we can't do it. You know, now we're in this completely different uh, internet that is just all subject to subpoenas and, and law enforcement action. And, and it's a, it's a different type of um, data stream that we're now all plugged into, but maybe I'm just saying that cause I, you know, it's been a busy winter <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm cynical. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, so I, yeah. I, I, I definitely share your cynicism in, in, in a particular way, which is to say, yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, the, the horrors, you know, the horrors and the interesting mm -hmm. kind of correlation to me is like where it started and, and who, and at what point it was like, you know, prior to this, when, when it was like, actually, that is a really clever thing. Put your plan on the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a really clever thing to have a camera pointing out to, you know, your, the sunset that you see every morning that anyone can go and see. And you, know, you have that good feeling of like, this is where I wanted to yeah. go. And then, you know, the, the various kinds of structures and various kinds of apparatuses come in and sort of use that for different purposes. And then we have, yeah. you know, take your favorite, you know, whatever, how, however you want to call it in um, and, and represent it, surveillance capitalism and all this kind of ill effects and, and on and on sure. and on. I guess the thing that I'm the thing that I'm feeling now is not is not I, I'm hoping that it, maybe I sound naive. I don't think it's naive because I think what I'm feeling is that it's possible to corral and activate in a productive way that cynicism and say look we need to do better like this isn't working and i i feel like that the that the the recognition that i see in, in a kind of allegorical way is like you have imagination and you have structure and imagination like says hey let's hook up this this potted plant to the internet 
and structures like that doesn't make any sense at all. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. Like, why would anyone want to do that? And imagination is just kind of like, I don't know. I just, it just felt cool. And that's good. Yeah, enough. let's see what happens. And then, and then at some point, structure comes, comes in and it's like, oh, you know what? I ran the numbers. Every household in the U.S. has, you know, 3.2 potted plants. So if we have enough of these, we actually, actually now it does make sense to me. Right. And so then there's that transition. And at that point, it's like maybe imagination and structure are in this really rich collaboration because, uh, you know, um, who was it? Uh, um, Katie and the gang from ITP who hooked up the, the plant to the internet, uh, botanicals, botanicals, because the plant can yeah, call yeah, you now yeah. and say it needs, needs mm-hmm. water. Right. Yeah. And, and, and they're like, this is awesome. You know, and they, I remember, I, I think they, they went on like Oprah. You know, in lab coats. Oh, wow! I, I, so you have I like that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So they, you have huh. you have imagination now, which is represented yeah. by them as kind of like Ernest, really creative, forward thinking, um, exploratory, uh, um, you know, bundle of imagination in the sense of hope and possibility, on mm. you know, on a show. And then someone rings up and says, like, this is, I don't know if this actually happened, but I don't know if they to the degree they turned it into a business. But let's say someone could say like, this is great. Now this is, we'll sell them at Bed Bath & Beyond, we'll clean up. And imagination might be like, that's awesome. Are you kidding me? I never thought I would make a buck, make a living doing this stuff. And you're telling me I can? Yeah. And then that happens. And then gradually, you know, that business gets a procurement department, they get HR, and then they get finance and control. And pretty soon the imagination part is like, man, this is not really what I signed up for. Like, I'm out. And so then structure kind of like, you know, takes over and it's just like, well, how else can we turn a buck on this thing? The structure says mm. like, well, actually, maybe we can sell some of this data. To who? It doesn't matter. I don't sure. care. You know, just so we can turn yeah. a buck. And, 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 and now imagination has completely been beaten to a pulp out of this to the point where they're like, yeah. I'm out of the ring. I throw in the towel and it's all structure. And I feel like we're at this cusp where now it's gone so far that way that I, mm-hmm. that I feel like not on its own, it's going to take, you know, really concerted effort. It's like, I'm going to have to write another book to say, this is what yeah. we need to do. We need to we need yeah. to really think about the ways in which we can turn this back because I'm going to tell you when imagination and structure are in a really rich collaboration, fucking we've sent men to the moon. Like it's 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 amazing, amazing stuff that happens, and so we just yeah. need to get back to that point. And I think it's like an argument that can be made. You know, again, it's like an allegory to both sides. So you can get both the fox and the chicken to kind of hang out together and watch Netflix, if you if you yeah. position it right. Yeah. Like, look, there's a value to both of you. You don't have to eat, you know, the fox doesn't have to eat the chicken or what? Is that a, is that an allegory? Is that one of Aesop's things? Uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, maybe a fable or an allegory. I think the other, other word maybe, but, um, yeah. but yeah, it's funny though too, because you can imagine a, a situation where, um, you know, someone does, I don't know, ambient audio recordings of, uh, households for, you know, baby monitors or other kinds of personal safety. So the kind of thing where you can hear it if your, uh, elderly parent has fallen down in their bedroom, or you can hear a baby if it's like crying in the middle of the night or hungry, but then somebody comes along and rather than structure, which would scale that up and turn it into some kind of audio, uh, you know, some sort of mega scale um, uh, thing that you buy at Bed Bath and Beyond or whatever. Right. You know, somebody comes along and decides to make um, like ambient field recordings of the Ballardian uh, air conditioning sounds inside people's homes, and it turns into some sort of strange thing that only ten people ever listen to. But you can play it at Berlin festivals, or you can right. take it to uh, you know Montreal for Mutech or something. But nevertheless, then someone else comes along, and this would be like the dark creativity where you realize, oh, well, this is also an excellent, you know, law enforcement wiretapping, uh, you know, eavesdropping tool. And so the exact same sort of act of creativity, which is that other sounds are being picked up by ambient audio recorders inside people's houses. 
there's the artistic version of creativity and of imagination, what you're talking about. But there's also like that sort of Death Star version of imagination that's still imagination and it's still creative and it's still a one off. It just has a has a sort of a darker motivation, which is to spy on somebody like you're trying to, I don't know, listen to the the recordings inside a dissident's house or whatever it might be. Um, but it's just interesting to me. My point is simply that, you know, ethically bad things can still be creative and they can still come from a, an, an initial impulse of imagination yeah. that just happens to go in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a negative direction, like a like a security service spying on its own citizens. Yeah. But it's still a creative act, you know, which isn't a defense of it. But it's also it's just interesting to me that, you know, it's like one of those um, political graphs that goes around on Twitter every uh, couple of weeks where you're meant to say that you're chaotic, neutral or lawful good or whatever. However, you rearrange yourself on the grid. I feel like there's acts of imagination and of creative breakthrough when it comes to technical devices. And it just depends on what direction you're going in. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know. It's a it's a it, that that is also, I think, an interesting dilemma in terms of the era that we're going into now, because we don't and never will, I think, fully understand the implications of of. Uh, design creativity you know it may turn out that the perfect thing that you just made that is absolutely it was absolutely geared toward audio aficionados and was meant entirely just to be used by artists you know turns out to actually enable you know um repressive regimes to always uh cue in on uh certain keywords in the conversations of dissidents or that kind of thing i don't know it's a it's just a funny it's a we I, we've lived in that era now for for 20 years but it's just a it feels like we're 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 going darker in my in my opinion, but um, mm. but again, maybe it's just because I'm in a a room without the where the uh, the shades are drawn and Tuesday morning. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe maybe also being dark. Also, I think I think that the yeah, I think the the like going dark has definitely has its value. I mean, it was and maybe maybe yeah. that's why I'm feeling like a little bit uh, exuberant in in some sense because it was it was um, it took a lot of work to not go particularly dark over the last few years, sure. you know, like to be very deliberate, to be like, okay, so what can I do to not go dark? Um, Cause you, you get, to, you get to a point like, you know, depending on your age where it's like, okay, so let's, let's not be the grumpy old man. Let's figure out how not to do yeah. that. Um, <laughs> and, and especially, especially as yeah. you accumulate, uh -oh. you know, like, like, like eras of experience. So, you know, like, growing up generally optimistic and, and being like, I think there's a lot of things that are possible I could do, you know, in the world, you sort of have that kind of sense of possibility when you're, I don't know, whatever, junior high or, or, or something like it was never like a kind of sad gothic wearing sort of grumbly teenager. And then, mm -hmm. and then you, and then you, you enter into a world um, where, where, you know, that, that, that spirit is almost kind of like etched into your consciousness in some way, like, Sure. The world is full of possibility, I mean, you know, not not in a super happy go lucky way, but it's like, you know, there there's opportunity and you maybe you reflect on it's like, well, actually, you know, it's like, fuck, man, it's like where where I was born and raised and who I was raised under like that. That was a that was a good deal. That, I got a good hand out of that. So, you know, let, let me try to take advantage of that and not. And so then if, and if when you accumulate these kind of eras of experience, like, so, you know, going online and sensing it being po all the possibility and then the dark period so that you know that there's a contrast, like you didn't just grow up in the dark period, for example, um, or, you know, the current era, or however you want to frame it, then, then it's sort of like, okay, so wow, what happened? Like, what's the pendulum of experience that, that I've had? And that is that representative of any possible trend? And, 
then I, I guess, you know, I just make a decision. It's like, let me, let me spin this optimistic. <laughs> and and yeah. it's not, I, I genuinely think, cause, cause I, I was actually looking at, I was looking at the draft that I'm just trying to finish now. And I was kind of like, man, I sound bitter. <laughs> so, oh. so there is a thing where you kind of, kind of like, you know, there, there's, there's a, where I, I almost feel like this impulse to kind of like, all right, just pull it back a notch or two. Like, you know, maybe this shouldn't yeah. be five chilies, make this three chilies. And then, and yeah. then, and, and part of it is just like reactions, like who do I want to read this and how do I want them to come away with it? Um, you know, yeah. with, with what kind of sensibility, like, cause you know, part of it is just like, I want to continue the conversation. Like this isn't just like, it's not like a, you know, like a Stephen King novel where it's just like, read it and whatever you want to make of it. It's like, read this and let's talk. Cause I think that there's some really good, interesting work to be done. Yeah, and I think true. if you come across as like too kind of bitter, like that's that grumbly guy at the end of the bar. Let's, let's sit over here. He's no fun. Yeah. 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 Well, no, it's a, it's a, it's a trap though. I, you know, I, th I think it's easy to fall into. And I feel like the, the notion of being a cultural critic, I think also um, is sets up a sort of trap that you would fall into. Not, when, when I say you, I mean one, you know, that yeah. one would fall into in terms of, um, yeah, becoming the grumbly guy at the bar because you're you're almost literally your job is to find the negative implications of right. things, you know, because otherwise you're not a critic, you know, <laughs> you're just an enthusiast or you're it's a superficial speculative this that and the other thing but um i do feel like there's the temptation if you want to be taken seriously you have to be negative uh, so i think there's there's that aspect to, of things too which you know i think also creates kind of a feedback loop so and kind of makes people you know feel bitter about other things etc but i don't know it's it's tough it's tough to navigate that i mean i feel like in my own writing lately it's been interesting to try to figure out uh, you know the kind of like un limited enthusiastic speculation of the early writing that i used to do on the internet is mm. feels a little bit different to me now and I, it's it's harder to sort of get into that mindset and it's not because of um i mean i think age is some is part of it you know this is obviously uh, i've never been older <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and that, i think that that changes you and uh, yeah and it's been a pretty brutal three years in terms of uh you know the covid lockdown started three years ago this month but um mm. anyway yeah it's a, it's just a, it's a, an interesting thing and then also i feel like I think about this a lot, actually, when I'm just sort of I'm looking at my life and getting older and stuff, you know, the 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 kinds of things that one wants to do with time and uh, and also what one has to do economically in order to survive, you know, like the things that end up get turning into work or turning into professional opportunities versus things that just feel good. Like I loved writing that, and, you know, and like not a lot of people are going to read it or maybe maybe millions of people are going to read it, but I'm not going to get paid for it. Yeah. versus other things where like well i have to make a living you know like this this is something that uh you know that is happening and and i think it's that trap of um like uh the sort of the midlife crisis phase of one's life where you're trying to figure out if you've yeah what are the things how do, how do you negotiate with yourself to find time for things that you still care about versus things that just pay pay bills and keep a roof over your head yeah but yeah. um, anyway, I feel like that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm going through in my life right now at this at this age, which is probably not very interesting for your podcast <laughs> no, listeners. I mean, but nevertheless, you know, is a is one of those I, things you got to think about. Actually, I think uh, I think it I think it is like it's uh, it's super interesting, and I think also to people, I mean, if who listen to the podcast because um, and I, I you know I, I wonder very explicitly. I'm telling you very explicitly because there, there's almost like a line in this introduction to this to this next book that I'm doing, where I asked the question that that um, which which kind of started with it, it, it starts with like, so, how, you know, how can I do things that that are 
how did you characterize it like that are that are that feel creative that are fun that are engaging that kind of feel like oh man i could just keep doing this forever um mm -hmm. and make a living and so I, I feel like that that's been like that's 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 the question right and i don't think it's like necessarily out of reach i'm not talking about like um i mean i guess there is probably a way to make a living like overindulging but in in in, a, in the sense that i think that that you and i are sharing it's like whether it's writing or whether it's you know creating I don't know let's just say art you know th things that make make people feel as opposed to mm -hmm. the you know the other side where it's just like you're going to grind on something probably in the services structure to to to, sure. to make a living like i'm going to go work at the plant or i'm going to go dig coal out of the ground um which, you know all day yeah. or whatever um and i think that if you're i think that i think that there is i think is it's almost like coming to a sense of clarity about what is it that i want to do and now i'm going to work uh, really diligently, because I'm so passionate about this, to find the way in which that creates value for someone. That's mm -hmm. what I'm going to focus on. And if if it's writing, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I mean, I think you've been pretty successful at that. I'm going to find a way to make this have value to someone. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to find the way to make them feel that this is of value to the point where like, this is great. What are your terms? Yeah. You know, or whatever, as opposed to sure, like, yeah. I guess the other side of it, which is just being like, the uh you know the cartoon parental figure or the sitcom parental figure who's kind of like you're never gonna make money doing that no one makes money doing yeah. art no one makes money yeah. as a writer like i there's yeah. a there's a whole like look at all those guys over there look at them we you, you think every of course everyone thought they were going to be stephen king but now look at them like joe's yeah. doing contracting he's painting houses you know whatever yeah. and if you it's almost like a sense of i don't want you know i don't know it's 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 simple to say but it's like it's not confidence. It's so much as, or, or just kind of like, I'm just going to keep doing, it. I'm going to force someone to figure it out. It's really studying what is it that I'm creating and how, yeah. how, who, to whom is this of value? And that, that also might mean like, you know, uh, to a certain degree, it's like, well, I don't know if, if you had your eyes set on that McMansion in Palm beach, that might not yeah. be consistent with, with the value creation you're talking about, unless you go like, yeah. you know, hard into like, oh man, I found this opportunity. If I just grind out these, you know these uh these pot boiler beach romantic comedy things as a book yeah. and then maybe that'll work but then are you feeling like you're is that work or is that fun yeah you know totally. what I mean? well yeah that's always i've always thought um you know the the way out then would just uh just get a pseudonym and you can just write uh yeah pot boilers and mystery novels and best-selling uh airport genre fiction you know and and, and make a living which is under a different name but um you know it's funny actually i feel like you know one of the things i think about too is this that the vision of you know the uh it's kind of a cliche now in anthropology or whatever but um and and a slightly outdated term for this kind of stuff but the idea of the potlatch you know which is this idea of this sort of a massive event of expenditure in order to effectively kind of give all of your surplus away to the village and show just how much you've accumulated uh you know it's this like the the most generous person and the person who has the most sort of wins the potlatch by being as generous as possible etc um but i feel like in the early days of internet writing i feel like there was this potlatch moment that lasted for six or seven years where there there was no real way to get this kind of stuff published elsewhere mm -hmm. and so in the design and architecture and uh other kind of speculative art, art writing communities uh, who went into like you know i'm referring specifically in this case to architecture blogging which is which was my early background 20 years ago but um you know, you're not going to get that stuff published in a in a major magazine because it's uh, it's too informal. It's maybe not even current. You know, you're talking about a novel you read six years earlier. There's no news peg, so a magazine's not going to print that. 
Um, there aren't enough magazines even to do it. The, your editors are looking for new stuff. They want to. They want you to go review a, a an art museum, not not just like random thoughts on representations of architecture in you know H.P. Lovecraft or that kind of thing. All right. But so you you had no choice. Like the, if you wanted to talk about this stuff, that was the way to do it. And so infinite expenditure was sort of the way to was, was the way to go out. Like just keep the flame burning. You know, like a someone comes by and they see your blog and you've got new material on it because you're talking about this thing now, some movie you saw or a television show or a lecture you went to or, a, you know, a novel you read or a comic book that someone was talking about. But like that material didn't have anywhere else to go. And I think that what's interesting now is that, first of all, that material, excuse me, I just, uh, screwed up the audio there. But um, the, uh, what, what, uh, where I think we are now is that not only does that space or does that stuff have a place to go now, like a lot of publications are, are, pursuing that and thus you can make a you can get paid to do it um but also i feel like in my phase of my career now it's like totally random things that would have been like a short blog post that i would have written and gotten rid of now it's like you know what actually i think there is somebody at at, at a at a film studio or a tv studio who might like that idea for mm. a possible a possible thing but so it, it sets up a really strange feeling of hesitation with one's own creative output because you're the ability, the knowledge that you can actually sell writing and sell an idea or, um, you know, sell a film pitch or get something picked up for, you know, uh, you know, a, a book deal or that kind of thing, I think is great financially, but it's, it's not necessarily a positive thing emotionally and psychologically because it, it starts making you rank your ideas in terms of salability mm -hmm. and you lose that sense of infinite communication and fun and connection that you, that one has to other people when you're just throwing ideas out because there's nowhere else for them to go. So I don't know. I think my point is that it's, it's a, it's a funny thing when one does start to make a living as a writer, because I think it can ruin one's enthusiasm for the act of writing itself. And it can also make you make one like really hesitant about certain ideas because you're thinking to yourself, Oh man, like in the right situation you know this would be this will be this huge the next hollywood you know tentpole super super blockbuster or in the you know if i sit down and i'm in the right mood this will be a stephen king novel or you know this could be this or it could be that but uh i kind of miss the days where i it would there was no way in hell that was going to happen and it was just going to be a good blog post you know what i mean like there was just a there was a way just to sort of write stuff get it out there and it didn't matter you know so i don't know i think it's funny like one of the ironies of attaching creative work to the market is that I think it can really mess up your own relationship to the ideas that you that you have and the and the way in which you want to communicate them to other people so it's a it's a bit funny I feel like that's another kind of red flag I would give to people who are hoping to get into the creative industries like watch for that sort of thing yeah for sure anyway. I mean, that that's the uh um you know that that's the classic thing where it's like uh well, there's yeah. there, there's so many so many scenes and so many wonderful little moments in you know in in film and just sort of anecdotes that you hear the one that just popped in my mind is uh Woody Allen's um Hannah and her sisters and 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 uh Michael Michael uh Michael Caine is is a uh brings one of his he's an accountant he brings one of his clients to the artist loft played by Max von Sydow in in you know like Soho New York or whatever and 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 he brings uh God, what was the name of the actor who played the the um he's sort of like a rock and roll musician and he's and I think the title text at the scene when the scene is introduced is like um I don't know you know so and so the char the character's name uh, just bought a house in the Hamptons 
And so, and so uh. his, his whole thing is like, I'm just, I'm looking for, I'm looking for art. I got this really big wall and I'm looking for, and Max Vancetto playing the grumbly old artist is like, I don't sell my paintings by the yard. And then just kind of pulls all those paintings back from like, I will not corrupt my creative sensibilities by this, yeah. even if it means that you're going to give me a shit ton of money. You know, and, sure, and, yeah. and the story of the artist who can't even de just will never sell their work. And mostly, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, if you if you kind of d dug into their consciousness, it'd be like, I just uh, that structure, that exchange mechanism, that mechanic of mm -hmm. value exchange is is uh, would would um, it, they might even not have an articulate reason. It just might be like, no, you know, like I will I, yeah. I would prefer to burn this. And doing people are like that doesn't make any sense at all like why would you do that yeah. it's this thing you created and yeah. uh th there's so much going on there in that in that relationship it's just like an inability to kind of you know um have a have a well-regulated relationship with you know the other side with structure you know mm. represented by the gallerist or re represented by the the philistine rock and roll musician who just wants to buy yeah. paintings by the yard actually what's wrong with that it yeah, sounds like yeah. a great idea that's a business isn't it hold on a second let me call my 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 business manager i think we can do that you know like, yeah. you know 500 per per inch gets you this artist and 12 dollars an inch yeah. gets you you know just sort of something very simple and elegant it, there's a there's a there's a nice uh, kind of throwaway line in um there's a novel oh man this is embarrassing i think it's called the way in but it's by uh, will wiles who is a uh, another architecture writer a british british architecture writer who's gone into fiction um but this person checks into a hotel and it's one of those um you know kind of uh travel lodge kind of places in in, in a, like a motorway hotel in in england but um there's an abstract pattern framed on the wall um, but they, there's this nice little moment where where the the character is speculating that there's some factory out there that just produces, has one gigantic abstract pattern, and they just cut sections out of it and sell it to hotels to frame. <laughs> and so this thing that's like you know the size of many football fields is just getting cut down into little squares and rectangles, and it's all being framed to fit random motorway hotels all across England. That's amazing. Um, but I feel like it's that kind of thing. Yeah, just the infinite pattern that gets that gets a you know it's like the it's like visual hold music. Yeah. 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 And the, and the, the kind of creative consciousness would just find that just so cynical. Oh my God. Can you believe yeah. it? Like what is there? That but it's so funny though, dude, because I feel like, yeah. And on the other hand though, it's like, it is so much, I think things like this masquerade as political, like this sounds political. Like, are you going to sell your work or you or sell out even, or are you going to make money doing this? These are, you know, these are intense economic political questions, but in a sense, like I honestly sometimes feel like they really aren't that it just comes down to, your attitude and your sensibility and there's people out there who would not give a shit about selling you know like they, they figure out a way to make a pattern you know i feel like we're kind of in this era now with uh, nfts and uh, auto generating art that you know you have an infinite pattern and every hotel in north america wants a fragment of it for their lobby like why would you not take you know a certain amount of money for per square foot just for this stupid pattern that you have nothing invested in yeah like, you know, it's not, uh, it, it's, you know, that isn't a political question anymore. It becomes a question of just whether or not you are identifying with the thing that you make. So I think that like, the painter in the Woody Allen movie, you, one could make the argument that he's over identifying with his art and thus is uh, going down the sort of um, the cliched route of the the starving artist. Yeah. Whereas there's another way of saying, yeah, fuck, I, you know, I, I, somebody paid me to, you know, write a corporate catalog for, 
um, like a car company and, and, and you do it for pay. It's not art. And then the same thing. Somebody paid you to write a, an international spy thriller set in the era of the Berlin Wall and about, you know, set, uh, you know, a, 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 in the world of industrial design. Like, it's just a stupid challenge that you're going to get paid for. And it, is it art? And I think that that's one of the the, the things that is, is an interesting line as well, because it isn't always the ethically or morally or politically impressive decision to say, oh, well, screw it. I'm not going to get any money. You know, I'm going to live in poverty and I'm going to be authentic. Because I think oftentimes those are people who have deluded themselves into thinking that they are such important artists that everything that they touch, you know, cannot be tainted by the marketplace. But in reality, it's kind of a buffoonish attitude. I don't know. It's a, it's just a really funny thing. Like I, I, yeah. all of these questions about how we pr- create and for whom we make things. Yeah. And also, you know, the, 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 the purpose of things that we make, like you can imagine a really idealistic, very politically committed industrial designer at a school in London or Paris or wherever it might be. And then next thing you know, they just make something that really takes off and just becomes a cheap piece of crap plastic at Target, you know, and like, I don't know, have they have they have they have they failed in their vision and given up on their own politics or did they in a really strange way succeed at doing what they wanted to do, which was, excuse me, like take uh, industrial design and 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 make a living out of it, et cetera. I don't know, like those kinds of questions don't have one answer. And I think definitely come down to individual people and their sensibilities. And and even some people, I think, do it out of the cynicism as, as, as its own form of political statement too, you know, like, right. Right. Anyway. Yeah. I think, I think the, um, and it makes me think of the, the, uh, the, the dreams that we're kind of born into or the, the kinds, I guess, you know, maybe like ideology might, might sound too strong, but the, the things that, the things that preexist us. So, you know, mm. coming up at a time as I think, you know, if, if anyone, if anyone's going to be an art, you know, like an artist, maybe they, they at least have a cursory kind of like uh, take on art history, whether they've learned it formally or they experience it or they heard the stories from where they read about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you're going to, you're going to hear about it. It's like the suffering artist. That's the way, you know, that is a way mm-hmm. that you, that you're like, okay. And so you internalize that. That doesn't come from nowhere. We're not born thinking yeah. like, you know, what? I'm being an artist and I'm going to suffer the fuck. It's going to be a shitty life. Yeah. You, 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 you kind of internalize that as an argument or a point of view to take when you're sitting with your friends at the bar and you're trying to explain why you're doing what you're doing or, or, yeah. or there's, or you're sitting with them at the bar and they're taking pity on you because you're a suffering, starving artist. And they're like, yeah, I get it. Like, you know, that's beautiful what you're doing. You're suffering for the thing yeah. that matters most. And you could just easily say like, fuck no, I'm not going to suffer. I'm going to, I'm going to make some filthy lucre off of this shit. And, and, and that can be the thing you internalize. It's going to run into conflict. It's going to butt right up against what people's expectations are as to what an artist is, which have been internalized from when our parents said like, please don't be a writer. Please don't be a writer. Yeah, totally. What's wrong with that? Yeah. I mean, law looks great. But it's also funny too, because it's such a, yeah, I mean, it's such a selective, um, and I, and I agree with what, what, what we, what you're saying in terms of uh, that, that inherited vision of, of arts and, and penury, but I feel like it's also a really selective understanding of art history that also had, you know, um, massively talented individuals who were, you know, the court artist for the Medici family, or, you know, were paid huge, uh, v- quite well, uh, you know, by royal contracts to design, you know, the inside of a church or to do massive oil paintings of historical scenes or whatever it might be. Like there's a, there's a different version of, the artist and as a different type of output that becomes possible and materials that are available and all, all sorts of things that 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 happen so it is just funny that a, a very particular vision of the 
of writers and artists, I think, you know, coming out of a sort of late 19th century art historical tradition that give, give a, gives us this sense that we all need to, you know, we have to, we have to wear the same trench coat for 20 years and I wonder drink if it's a setup and, who, and who live would in have, poverty. If I was to be really cynical, like who's the setup? Like which, which, what who's room of, yeah, what room of the Illuminati kind of, uh, you know, um, high, high rise <laughs> was like, well, if we get them to think, that they shouldn't be paid well. That they have to be poor. We know we need them, right? We know we need them because we yeah. know actually the world runs on, you know, people make decisions based on feeling. And so we need them yeah. to be, you know, create really good feeling and really good narratives and stories <laughs> that play into our vision. Yeah. So we need a bunch of novels that are kind of like mindless, you know, for the, for the, so, cause we don't want them thinking too hard about their situation in life. So give the housewife gets the yeah. romantic novels, the dude, we need them in the army, so let's give them a bunch of really good stories about heroism and machismo and that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, really no, it's funny though. I feel like we don't even. I mean, the darker answer I think is there. We don't need the Illuminati skyscraper. I think that we do that to ourselves. You know, like we were the ones that limit our options and opportunities in life and, and make decisions mm. like that. And and think, oh, I'm not, I'm not good enough. Yes. You know, the people who don't, who doubt yes. themselves, I'm not good enough to make a living with this or my writing is, you know, it's fun. I like it, but I, I can't sell it. Nobody wants it. And yes, I don't know. We, and then when you look at art history, it's like, oh, see, look, you know, there have been starving artists throughout history. I'm just like that now. Yeah, so I feel yes. like it's, so I feel it's so I'm, like, so I'm uh, in my place is where I'm meant to be. And that's it. Yeah, exactly. I feel like uh, people sort of uh, ground themselves, you know, it's a, uh, it can be, unfortunate but um yeah it's all these narrative risks and how one sees oneself in terms of creative output and and work and it's uh it's funny if i don't there there is no answer to it you know i think every individual person encounters it at different phases of their life and they also have totally different attitudes when they when they do encounter it so i don't know it's kind of yeah it's interesting i feel like if you pulled 50 writers and 50 artists and 50 uh you know even you know, uh, industrial designer kind of people and you, and you ask them where they are in their life or, or this, you know, how they feel about output. I mean, you would get the, 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 you know, variations of these sorts of answers. Some people who are 100% fine with what they do and they work for a mega corporation doing, you know, things for Muji or whatever it might be, or they live in absolute misery and they teach at a community college, but you know, they're, they're about to produce the great American novel or, you know, I mean, there's just, there's no, yeah. it's, it's, it's just, it's 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 really difficult, I think, to find universal rules for for these sorts of questions. Yeah, and I I guess what maybe one of the things as you're talking that um, that I feel excited about is like I feel like there's an opportunity to to kind of present this this frame that I guess you know kind of gets down to the thing of like um, to a certain degree don't 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 discount your potential greatness. Sure. Like you, you don't have to suffer at the megacorp if you feel like you're suffering, it, which yeah. doesn't mean like quit your day job. It just means like, are there ways in which you cannot be suffering? And I, you know, I don't know what that means in a practical case, but I get, you know, I, I, I kind of ran the analytics. It's like I had over the last for like maybe uh, two plus years, I think it was almost three years. Um, I've been having on average um, one of, of one coffee call. Uh, every two days so that's where essentially like I, I talk to someone and and it's usually like they found me or i found them mostly mostly as, as people kind of enter into the kind of expansive uh becoming of whatever the near future laboratory is becoming and i just every time someone joins i said like let's grab a coffee so it's just, it's been a lot so when i ran the numbers i was like holy shit. Yeah. And, and and i was trying to find a basis for saying in in the in the introduction to the book that i keep mentioning 
um, where my where my sort of perspective and why I you know why I feel the way I feel about this particular point about the relationship between imagination and structure. And it's been like overwhelmingly, and it, it's a self-selecting group, right? So it's not just like a random consumer survey. And I'm totally fine with that. But I talk to people and they're just kind of like, kind of sucks. Like I thought I was going to be like yeah. a creative doing like making real material change in the world. And here I am, you know, stuck in Megacorp. And yeah. I just don't know what to do. And and some of them, you know, in, in a very kind of beautiful, earnest way are like, they're like, I'm trying to figure out how to do more of what you do. And I'm just like, actually, I wanted to have this call because I'm trying to figure out how to do more of what you do. And, yeah, and from my side, it was like, it was like, I want to be welcome to the and, and feel warm within within it within the you know the, the warm embrace of megacorp and they're like no it's not warm here and then i'm saying like well you know there's a lot of challenges if you're if, you know to just kind of find your way like i'm not sure yeah. that's that's the greatest thing and somewhere in between is 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 where i think you know is the kind of formation of of you know imagination and structure like with the dial it's not a it's not a you know the dial just in the middle you know like not yeah all one way and not all the other not the suffering starving artist and not the you know all the way at 10 like i got so much money i don't know what to do with and i'm also miserable and you know i yeah. had a near-death experience and i look back at my life and i'm like what a waste you know whatever yeah. so like now i'm going to be like a guru or something uh, yeah yeah i think there are other um, ways to make to, to create a meaningful life basically is what i'm saying yeah yeah totally totally um, forgive me for asking, but what what is the book you're working on? Is it a, is it about imagination and structure, or or is that just the sort of the guiding um, uh, sort of posts that you're using for it? Uh, yeah, so I, I I would say it is um, as it as okay. it turns out. It, it started as a um, it, it's called the Reader's Guide to the Manual of Design Fiction. So it's, sure. um, okay. yeah. uh, it, essentially, it's the you know the it's the description. Um, there's a manual of design fiction, which is very much like a manual in, in, a, in, in a certain kind of sense. It's like, okay, here's what you do and here's how it works. And this, here's some examples. And then what, uh, what I wanted to really underscore in this, in this follow-on book is like, why, why is this important? Why do I think it's important? And that was, um, that was something that, you know, it's in there a little bit, but I think it's in, the, I think it needs, it needs its own, it needs its own book basically to say like why is this important and i'm not just talking about important because it's going to help align teams and create a shared vision of a possible future for your you know design strategy or whatever it's it's mm -hmm. it goes it goes i wanted to go a, a bit deeper um and actually i didn't know i wanted to I, but i did know that i wanted to do a follow-on book and it wasn't until i started sharing the um the i guess the underpinnings of the of the book mostly in talks and the kind of reaction that I got back from people was, it made it feel impor important to do, to state, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a form that wasn't just a 50 minute, you know, kind of, or 20 minute slideshow to a group of students or something. Like people were really mm -hmm. feeling into it. It's like, man, okay, I need, it felt like I needed to hear that. Tell me more, tell me more. Um, mm -hmm. But it was, it was, it's using the allegory of imagination and structure. I'm sure, yeah. No, it sounds cool, man. Yeah, I'm excited to check to check it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, can we talk about the Netflix? Uh, sure. Yeah. Which, which just, anyway, whatever. Yeah. yeah uh, so um, it dropped quite recently. It sounds like it's doing great, from what I can tell. You know, 
I guess what Netflix is telling me about it, <laughs> which yeah. I guess they would say it's great. But it sounds yeah. it sounds amazing. No, I mean, Tell me the story. You have that had this come about. Um. Well, yeah, the, uh, well, I guess there's two ways to tell you about the story. So the story itself was, um, yeah, I wrote a short story about um, a little bit more than five years ago. And uh, I, there were two things kind of motivating it. One was the sense that, um, and, and this is the abstract motivation, um, which was that, you know, when you're watching, or I find when I'm watching horror movies, or even a lot of action movies, where something happens, and you're meant to be scared of it, um, it's just very, very obvious that it's an actor reacting to CGI. And uh, it always has seemed to me that there is there is room in the market now for a scene in which a character is just like, you know, they go up, they go upstairs, they find a ghost and their reaction is not like, holy shit, there's a ghost. It's like, hey, there's a bunch of CGI in the attic. Like, where the hell did these computer graphics come from? Like, where's the sort of meta level commentary on that? Mm. Um, and so in thinking about that, I started wondering about what would happen if you um, found a ghost in your house, but you just were not having it at that time. Um, you know, you've been, you've had a really bad day at work. Uh, maybe you're just not at all intimidated by the ghost. Um, maybe you've been trying to go to sleep for, a, you know, two or three weeks and you just, you have insomnia and there's this fucking thing in the attic that's keeping you awake. Um, you know, so what would you do if you're, if you, if you just simply don't give it fear, you know, cause I think the entire horror genre yeah. depends upon characters that can't stand up for themselves and are scared of the thing that is confronting them. Yeah. The and so I've lately the, I've gotten into, dark, you know, yeah. At, yeah, as you watch horror, there are so many scenes where it's just like, Oh, come on. Like if, if that character had some spine, like they're not even in a dangerous situation right now, like if anything, it's annoying. Like there's this little thing, you know, following them around the house. Like that's more irritating than it is scary. Yeah. Like put it in a fucking box or something. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like, like find a way just to deal with this little intrusion yeah. that you don't yeah. want to deal with. Here's you know, a bus ticket. Go to Detroit. <laughs> yeah. Get the fuck out of my house. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, get, you know, why are you here? And so um, I wanted to explore that with this family. So the guy, you know, he finds a ghost. He calls it Ernest because it looks like Ernest Borgnine and uh, turns into a social media sensation, et cetera. And so um, anyway, it was, really, it was a really, really fun story to write. I really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, it led to this like totally crazy Hollywood experience for me where um, like a big bidding war and, and, and um, like directors that whose names you'd recognize were, 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 were trying to uh, uh, take it on to direct. Um, and it was super, super, super exciting. Um, and then it eventually became a Netflix project and uh, just came out last week. And um, the movie's pretty, it's called, the movie's called We Have a Ghost. Uh, the short story was called Ernest. And um, yeah, the movie is definitely different from the story. Um, you know, it adds some plot elements. It kind of shifts uh, the emphasis in the story. The short story that I wrote is really between the ghost and the son of the man who discovers the ghost. Um, so the son feels bad for the ghost as the ghost becomes visibly depressed because the mm. ghost is so used to scaring people and this family isn't scared of it. And in fact, they treat it sort of like a like a circus animal. They bring it out at dinner parties and, you know, they take selfies with it and stuff. Um, and so the ghost eventually just stops performing because it's like, you treat me like shit. I'm not going to do that. You know what I mean? I'm not some animal. You know, I was like, you know, and also on top of it, if you think about it, I'm a ghost. So how do you think I became a ghost? Like something really negative happened to me. Mm. So I'm dealing with my own shit and now you're treating me terribly. And the kid in the story sees that. And so the kid and the ghost sort of escape the house together and run away and go on a road trip. Um, and so the story really focuses on the son and the ghost's relationship to each other because they both sort of feel mistreated by the dad. They feel overlooked by life. Um, you know, they're confused about what's next. 
Um, but in the movie, uh, that sh the the emphasis shifts a little bit more from to the son and the father, and so it becomes more of a question of fathers and sons, and the ghost is a little bit more secondary to that. Yeah. But um. But yeah. So it was a lot of fun to be to be a part of that, and uh. You know, I was able to. I did not write the screenplay. The the screenplay was written by the the director, uh, Christopher Landon, and um. So I got to you know offer input and stuff like that. So that was a lot of fun, and to you know to go into. Hollywood meetings and, and that sort of thing. But um, but yeah, I mean, now it's doing really well. It was the number one movie in 69 countries, number one Netflix movie in 69 countries. Yeah. Um, which amazing. is kind of nuts. And uh, I don't, it's uh, right now, I think it's number three in the United States. Yeah. But um, it's ahead of Magic Mike XXL. So, you know, you know, something's going on if that's true. But um, yeah, who knows if it's going to be the, the first of many or a once in a lifetime experience. Um, I don't know, but it was a, it was great, you know, really, really great cast as well. So it was a, it was a, an exciting experience. And I'm, um, I've got a couple other stories that are in the adaptation process for film and TV. So we'll see if any of those actually go forward. But, um, you know, with Hollywood, you know, one out of a hundred projects actually get made. So it's, you know, you have to have, you have to have tons of shit out there, uh, you know, yeah. in order to have one of them break through. Yeah. So it really requires like massive quantities of output. I read, uh, uh, there's somebody I follow on social media who, compared it to the work ethic if you want to be you know the lebron james of of uh you know film and tv it's the same kind of thing like you have to practice every day you have to be right. out there you got to be shooting three pointers you got to be dribbling you got to be stretching you got to be constantly treating it the way a professional athlete would be treating it you know orient your entire life to being you know to a different type of fitness and that's just writing having up having plots having ideas having pitches always having something out there and um, that can be super overwhelming, actually. Like if like if I have sounded a little cynical over the last uh, 45 minutes, I think some of it is that, you know, working in Hollywood, it can be really exhausting and strange and uh, and and can make you question a lot of ideas that sound great. Like that sounds like an amazing idea, but it turns out like it's really hard to convince, you know, a bunch of studio executives that that would make a good movie. Um, and instead, it would probably just make a better blog post. Um, but the <laughs> ups and downs are also pretty extreme. You know, I feel like uh, the funny thing about working in Hollywood is that a single idea that sounds kind of dumb can be the thing that, you know, gets you that McMansion in, in, in Palm Beach or whatever, or it can be this thing that, you know, no one ever talks about again. And, you know, you're constantly riding that roller coaster with every project, you know, because one project is like, holy shit, man, this is going to be HBO Max is interested and it's going to become this thing. And you're and you're thinking, OK, th you know, thank God I'm not going to, you know, die, you know, uh, you know, experiencing homelessness in my 50s. And then the whole thing falls apart. And then the same thing happens with another project and then another one. And it's like, you know, yeah, it's like manic depression in a professional form. So right. uh, it's a it's a it's a pretty weird lifestyle to live. But if so people, anyone listening to this podcast, if you really thrive on this sort of massive ups and downs and just like constant pitching, Hollywood is a pretty great place. To <laughs> uh, if you don't if you don't like that. I would urge you to, yeah, to think twice about getting involved in, in, in that, in that, in that world. But, um, anyway, so that's my long winded answer of, of, uh, we have a ghost and the fact that it's out on, uh, on Netflix now, if you want to, if you want to give it a stream. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> do you feel like it happened with any sense of purpose on your part or was it, was it just like, Oh, someone just happened to stumble across this thing. Like, did you try to, you know what I mean? Like, so as, as opposed to were you pitching it, you know, for the art, article says the story is over five years old. When was, when was Ernest written? 2017. So yeah. So like yeah, 2017. just, just, uh, just under, just under six years. So, yeah. um, or was it just like, was it just another blog post and you just happened, someone just kind of came along and, yeah. uh, 
and was like, whoa, wait, there's something here. Yeah, it's funny. I, I guess I'd say it was kind of a combination of those two things because uh, I had already had a couple things optioned by studios when I wrote Ernest. And so I was aware of that process mm -hmm. and I was aware of how to na na navigate that. And and then also because of the previous options, I, I knew people at different studios or um, creative individuals, writers, directors, et cetera. So I knew who to get it to, you know, but um, but the but the actual act of writing was more like a blog post. You know, I mean, it was just a, a short story that I published uh, on Vice, um, you know, with a friend who was an editor there. Um, it was my first major work of fiction, major meaning like it wasn't a 800 word post on building blog that was like, you know, sort of meta fictional speculative writing. And um, so in other words, since it's an actual story, it has a beginning, yeah. a middle on an end, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, but so, yeah, so I'd say I wrote it for well, kind of like for myself and for my wife, because I remember um, before we moved out of New York to Los Angeles, uh, we were walking around Brooklyn Heights and I, and I told Nikki, my wife, the story of Ernest. You know, this family finds a ghost, but, you know, they turn it into a circus animal, this kind of thing. And um, and she was like, yeah, you definitely got to write that. So I kind of wrote it for her just to prove I could do it. Mm -hmm. And um, and then, yeah. And then and then from there on, it, it sort of it sort of uh, transformed. But it's funny, you know, since Ernest was options, um, I mean, I've definitely gotten involved in projects that are totally calculated you know like this is this is an opportunity or like this is a chance or this right. is responding to a particular cue from someone i know at a studio that wants a project sort of like x you know so then you're like oh, okay i can do that like it's a you know it's a it's a bit of a challenge like you come up with this sort of plot structure or this this kind of character in this kind of situation um and then again those are the kinds of things too where it feels like oh wow this is going to go somewhere and then it doesn't go anywhere at all and you're like why the fuck did i write that um, and then, yeah. and then there are other things that are much more like blog posts where it's just like, I love this fucking idea. It's a good idea. I want to write this story. So you write it and nothing happens to it, but that's fine. Cause it was fun. You know, it was a, right. it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a cool thing to put out. Um, yeah. it felt good doing it. And then also it's just one thing on my to-do list I can cross off. Oh, I wrote, I wrote that story. I dealt with that idea. You know, it's gone now. Yeah. And, um, and that's just a psychologically fulfilling state to be in knowing that you're actually getting rid of things. Cause that, the other thing I think that happens as a professional writer is that, um, you get really backed up. Like you have these ideas that you know would be really good, uh, but there's this illusion that you can do something with it professionally. And so you sit on it for like two or three years or four or five years, even like, Oh, that thing, I'm going to get back to that novel idea that I had, or I'm going to get back to that screenplay idea that I had. Um, but you, fuck you, of course you're not going to, because also every single, every six months there's a new idea yeah. and that list just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, <laughs> you know? And, and then, and then, uh, you know, sometimes this I try is, to, this is my list, you know, it's just like, oh, God, just yeah. like zillions. Yeah, it's terrifying. Of... <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes when I'm when I'm feeling really, really stupid, I will make a I'll be like, OK, what are the what are the five or six stories that right now that I really want to work on? Um, and so I'll, I'll type out I'll just start a new you know doc and I'll, and I'll start listing these things. But inevitably, then I'll start I'll keep on listing ideas like, oh, that thing I had a, I was thinking about the other night or that other story from five years ago I never wrote. And next thing you know, I've got this list of like 27 stories yeah. and it's just utterly paralyzing. You know, like it's it's impossible to work on a single one of them precisely because there's just too many. Um, yeah. And so then that's when I go go for a walk or I go gardening or, you know, that kind of thing. But so maintaining productivity is is a is a, is a pretty ch big challenge. Yeah. I mean, I, so because I'm invested in the, in the in this idea, I, I start seeing everything through like through the lens of the, the allegory of imagination and structure the yeah, sure. because it's like you have the feeling and then you say then you then you insert it into you know very primitive structure like a list and then yeah. then it's then it starts breaking down because you're confronting 
you know, yeah. structure. Structure is trying to say, like, get your shit together. Like, yeah. you know, it's doing the thing in the 30s movie where the one fella splashes water in the guy's face and slaps him a couple of times. Get yourself yeah, together, yeah. man. What are you doing? Yeah. And 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 then and then you then you go back to the space where imagination feels a little bit more comfortable. You take a walk, get away from the square box that you with the little plastic keys that you you punch. Uh, go gardening, you know, which is like where you you mm -hmm. might can just kind of luxuriate in the beauty of like you know the smell of the soil or whatever. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Yeah. Someone writes a poem about that, and the, and we say that you know that's another kind of story that we those pre existing stories. Take a walk, clear your head, like clear yeah. it of what. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> clear it of a little bit of structure you need to like kind of make some room for yourself yeah yeah it's funny i feel like an alternative to list making is a you know a good like a, a way to make a note of the things you want to do but not the structure of the list i think mm -hmm. would be a would be a good thing but uh anyway yeah sometimes like pinning up a postcard on a wall that is somehow that changes every that. couple of hours yeah. yeah. Um, is there anything to say about after all, there is no finish line? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I guess I thought that was, uh, I mean, I loved the the project you're talking about just for your, for listeners, if, if this goes into the, the final uh, cut of the podcast, River is a, is a, a little book that Nike put out um, on the uh, 50th anniversary of Nike as a company, and they wanted to look forward to the next 50 years of Nike. And, and thus the next 50 years of design, and that means the next 50 years of manufacturing, the next 50 years of material science, and even the next 50 years of what it means to be an athlete, what it means to be embodied, what it means to do things physically with with oneself. And um, I was asked to write five pieces of speculative fiction that would explore that world, and they were meant to go along with certain claims that Nike was making about the future of design, the next five decades of design. And so, um, you know, being having a background in architecture writing, um, you know, I and immediately gravitated to this project in terms of thinking about venues and thinking about where sports take place, because mm -hmm. um, that means landscapes, that means buildings, um, and those frame sports and those determine activities and and so on and so forth. And um, Sam Graw, who was the editor of the book, uh, you know, at one point when we were doing some strategy meetings for the for it, you know, showed me an image that Sid Mead, the the legendary set and a concept artist, uh, set designer and concept artist, um, you know, who did Blade Runner and so on. Um, if uh, if he had did uh, uh, he had done a um, a vision of the Kentucky Derby. And it was this, you know, uh, stadium that was, you know, straight out of uh, kind of like, you know, Sid Mead science fiction, you know, with robots and flying structures and chrome surfaces and that kind of thing. And so I started going down that route. And so in the book, thought of some different ways to to look at, yeah, responsive landscapes mm. where, um, you know, the, 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 an outdoor running field is basically a kind of um, interactive computer system that picks up human biometric signals um i was thinking about off-world uh games so people that go into zero gravity or very or very low gravity uh circumstances in space um what might that open up for future athletics um and i feel like actually just to be honest i feel like that it seems almost inevitable to me i mean if we don't have a nuclear uh holocaust here on earth um the idea that we're going to have off-world sports just seems like a total no-brainer and um in fact actually it was it was funny because a, a couple years ago i wrote an article that was looking at it was the speculative look at uh, crime off the off world. 
Um, so how how are we going to solve crimes in a in um, non-terrestrial circumstances? You know where things might be different in terms of um, like you know the the cliche would be like a blood spatter pattern. You know that they, they use that in like a really bad you know uh, you know Thursday night primetime uh, uh, you know TV show to determine where the victim was or how they were stabbed. Well, that's going to be very different, you know, on a zero gravity uh, 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 international or interstellar space flight, or it's going to be very different on Mars that has a very different gravitational um, strength. Yeah. So those kinds of questions. But it was the reason why I'm saying this is because at one point this incredible coincidence happened where I was telling a friend about that article, and he was like, "Oh my God, man! I know a I know a guy down in um, I think it was in Anaheim, uh, it's Southern California. Let's just say." Um, but we have a friend down in Southern California who is specifically developing a new martial art for space, because the thing <laughs> is that if if you and I are in a zero gravity environment and I kick you, I will yeah, also be right. thrown backwards. You know, so yeah. we will we will mutually fly apart from one another. And so his thinking is that if you need and, and, and his thinking was that we're going to need security in space simply because you never know someone who might have a psychological breakdown. They might be an abuser. You know, so any number of things might happen and you're going to have to restrain somebody. So just in case you do, um, you can't just punch them or kick them. You have yeah. to grapple. And so yes. the idea was if you look, if you look at sports, yeah, like jujitsu, mixed martial arts, if you look at sports all over the globe, and you pick and choose moves that involve yeah hugging, grappling, entwining, locking, bracing. Um, that's what we'll have to do in space. Amazing. Uh, you know when I we're supplying this. private security or whatever it is that we're doing. And so I was thinking about that too. Like, okay, that would also be true then in certain sports or gymnastic circumstances, because if you're flinging yourself off of a off of a you know, a, a horse, like in gymnastics, you know, you're going to, you're going to, next thing you know, you're going to be orbiting Saturn. Yeah. The pummel so, horse. You know, even, <laughs> yeah, even, even exactly. You can't have that in space. So, you know, what would an off world Olympic event look like? And um, so those are the kinds of questions that are, you know, sound sort of uh, dippy and stupid, but are actually fascinating. And uh, I wanted to explore that world in one of the stories and, uh, and so on and so forth. So it was a lot of fun. You know, it was a, it was a it was a kind of a strange book to be a part of and 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 on one level just because um you know nike imagining the next five decades of design um but uh it seems to have gone over well and it was a lot of, yeah it was a lot of fun to put together but also i think that that's the kind of thing that um all fields benefit from speculative writing like that you know i totally. think that if you yeah. wanted to know where sports are going if you want to know where cinema might be going if you want to know where cooking might be going in the next 50 years, you know, hiring people who write fiction and who do design fiction or do, do architecture fiction or whatever it might be is, is, uh, is so fun. And it's such a great way to see, even if it's not a prediction, but just a depiction of what things might be, because that will help stimulate thinking about what we're doing now, the materials we're working on, processes that we might be daydreaming about. Um, yeah. So on that level, I think that I would encourage yeah, other fields, other companies, you know, to do this, this kind of design fiction kind of stuff that you, you also do and get people thinking about possible futures through fiction. It's just a, it's just a really exciting uh, and, and relatively, uh, you know, affordable way to sort of ideate. Yeah. Which makes me even more, um, more glad that, uh, that we're having this conversation because I've started this, like, um, I'm, I'm overstating it for the, for, for, for humor, like a new business unit called Magazine from the Future, because we started getting commissioned to do, to, you know, sort of, you know, but essentially clients like, I don't know what we want to do, but we want some of this design fiction stuff. 
Sure. Seems seems like a you know good could be a good creative way of ideating. And uh, the, then we would we would you know kind of go through our little process, but we would come to a point where it's like, man, there's so much rich material here. And um, that that actually, you know, given the timeline and how quickly you want you, you want to work through this, let's do a magazine because you can tell so many different stories about the world through that. Like it's not just a one-sided like future vision video. It's yeah. like you got you got op-ed pieces, you got classified ads, you got you know um, really high-end ads, and then you have the the lousy kind of back of the page, back of the magazine remnant ads. You've got letters to the editor, which you know a good magazine will have both sides. You know, it's like, yeah, I really like that. And those, you know, you missed this one point that's really important. And so you can so, show this multivalent, really rich world in this archetype, a magazine that is legible to pretty much everyone, meaning that they get what it is, as opposed to, I don't know, something, you know, like a, you know, like a, I don't know, like an industrial designed object. There, there's a future company, but I don't, I don't quite get it. Or something that's a little bit too opaque. It's like people get a magazine, they're kind of like, oh, cool, the new, issue of monocle great yeah. wait a minute what's going on here this is a little bit off the world's a little bit different there's a whole feature article about about the about the olympics maybe not without even a year saying that so-and-so won in the in the you know in the 0.4 microgravity division yeah and you could and you could talk about it and people are like what where am i right now what is <laughs> yeah. going on you yeah. know and they can kind of feel into it so um I guess that's just to say parenthetically that uh, that might be reaching out to you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Keep me in mind. Yeah. Cool. Um, that was that was amazing. Thank you for that. Good talk. Oh, sure. Yeah. Totally. Thanks for uh, yeah having a uh, talking through some stuff. It yeah. Was fun. Good stuff. Yeah. Uh, sorry if I came off as uh, I can no longer tell if I come off as too too cynical or still too naive and enthusiastic about things. I have no idea anymore. No, man, it, but, uh, it's all good. I think, and like cool. I said, I think that I think having you know that 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 that, that you know, I'm totally familiar with it. It's like you know, in in, in a particular way, um, it 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 comes it comes from a good place. It's not there yeah. just to be the shit starter. Yeah, <laughs> you're not uh, you're not a uh, you're not the Larry David kind of character who just brings trouble everywhere in a yeah, beautiful yeah. way. Yeah. Um, all right, my friend, uh, be all well. Right. All right, cool. Yeah, you too. Okay, that was Jeff Mayna. Wonderful. Now, go watch We Have a Ghost over there on Netflix. And don't forget, the Manual of Design Fiction is now out in the second paperback printing, so you want to grab that over at shop.nearfuturelaboratory.com. Also, sign up for our newsletter over at the Work in Progress, very much a work in progress, that is nearfuturelaboratory.com, and seriously, consider supporting us over at patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. All right, time to walk the dog. Thank you for listening. Seriously, thank you. I'm Julian, and I'm out.